Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. today by Gary Cox. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Susan. It's a real pleasure to be doing this as well. Cool. So, Gary, I know you've had a really interesting and diverse career and that you started out in accounting and finance. Tell us your own life story. Yeah, I have. I've I've just finished a book, actually. Um, There's, I think you can, this is visual, so people on the podcast won't see this. This is like, the book. Um, oh. I have to put my glasses on. I couldn't think of what to call it, so I called it A Ginger-Haired Underdog's Comical Journey to the Top. Although I don't know where they actually got to the top, but I got quite near the top. Uh, I, I wanted to write something that reflected my personality, but also had a serious message. So basically, it's a set of, there's 12 chapters in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the first seven are virtually stories of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of it, I've got a summary of each chapter saying, this is what I learned in that chapter. And this is how I used it in my uh, later life. So a lot of this is around resilience. A lot of it's around self-belief, self-awareness, collaboration. A lot of this is around collective responsibility, responsibilities of an individual, but also trying to facilitate collective responsibility as well. So it's, you know, it starts off, basically as a lad with ginger so when I was younger I had ginger hair which in the 70s was a bit of a curse and I was very marginalized so it's there's a lot of comedy in there well well I think it's comedy but there's a lot of comedy and very unusual stories so basically it starts off with a lad with ginger hair counselor state who gets a bit bullied and has to get through that goes to a flukes his exams I don't know how past him to go to a really posh grammar school that's about about 60 mile away we had to go about five o'clock to, to get on buses. But again, that, that brought in work ethic. So, mm-hmm. so I'm going mean, to get up at five and travel to school, brought in early work ethic. So that's just a, a, little, uh, a little spoiler there. Um, so so I talk, so talk about that. And then I talk about leaving school with no qualifications. So I went to this, I left with no qualifications and I, I worked as a radio presenter in Debenhams, uh, believe it or not. Wow. And then, and then I, I, at 27, I still had no qualifications. And then, one thing happened to me where I nearly died one day in a job. Ooh. And yeah, and and what I did is I did something stupid, but I did it to sort of save the company and save other people. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that and said that I built this work ethic, something happened, an accident, and I, there were no one around, and I went and took on responsibility. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, I, I just thought, for me, it was just the right thing to do. And afterwards, um, the managing director, I had to go to hospital. And a couple of days later, 
when I went to work and, and I, were, I were a forklift truck driver then, so that that was my job. DJ at night, forklift truck driver through the day at 22 years old, wherever it was. And, uh, and it, it just it was just amazed about the courage that I'd shown. And, and then he, I told him what school I went to and he's like, mm-hmm. not being funny, Gary, but why do you drive a drunk forklift truck? You went to one of the best schools probably in Yorkshire. And you seem really switched on. And I was just saying when I left and I, I've done all these jobs and I've done them okay. And this job helps me balance my life because I'm into radio presenting DJing and, and it's a shift system and, and it pays quite a lot of money as well. And he would just say, he, he just says, look, I have a finance. This is, this is terrible. This is all back in 1980s. He says, I have a finance function. He says, which people come and go. He says, I'm not sure what to do. There's mm-hmm. Nigel in charge or whatever. And he says, you'd be fantastic in there. And I says, well, it just happens that, because I decided to go to night school then to get, so I'm doing, yeah. I started, I, I jumped, from, so I didn't get any qualifications, so I decided, I'm going to do O-level maths, and I'm going to do a bookkeeping exam, I forget what an RSA one or two, so we're doing those, I told him I'm doing that, and he went, right, he says, I'm going to trial you out, he says, I think you should go and find out, even if you chase a few debts up, stamp a few invoices, yeah. and he says, it can't be nice working out in all weather, so I went, you're brilliant, he says, I'm going to do that, he says, because, he says, you actually saved the day. He says, and he says the driver motivation, plus you needed him, because it was it a recycling company, so acids were involved. Now, fortunately, I did chemistry at school, so I know what to do from yeah. when acid gets leaks out and everything. So, you know, I'll tell him about my thought process on what I did. And he says, look, just give it a go. And he says, that's fine. People in the factory were taking bets on how long I'd last, you know, in the office. Oh, yeah. I said, Don't and, I, and I went in there and I never came out. And wow. then I did well, I did AAT um, qualification and then I, I left I, and then I decided to, to go to another role. I did all, nobody gave me time off, so I had to buy the books and study at home. So I just went through all past exam papers, looked for course subjects. A good thing for people out there is I learned to learn when I was 27 years old. Nice. So I learned visually. So yeah. when I was doing corporate law, Everything I flipped, I turned one room into flip charts, drew everything out so I could absorb things and remember things. Yeah. And that, that's where it all started. So it goes through everything and then it goes through how I worked in France for a year, different functions. And then hopefully it, it has a nice summary. There's an underlying theme that goes through this uh-huh. as well as a story. And at the end, it sort of just says, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think it's quite an inter- it is quite an interesting story to write down. But... I think if it inspires people or gets people to think about what they could do um, with their lives, which if they're not happy now in the career, then I think it might be of use. So yeah. that's what it is. I've sent it to a few people and they've come back and they've, again, I'm not sure whether they want to be kind, but they really liked it, some people. Really, really liked it. We like people's stories. As human beings, that's what we like. Real stories of real triumph over adversity of building up resilience. So, great. Look forward to reading it. Yeah, well, I might send you a, a pilot copy. There's one chapter called Restraining Orders from Famous People. Because in my job, I did meet quite a few. And, and I'll just, just, just to give you a snippet of how crazy my life was, there's the day that I nearly got shot by... David Cameron's bodyguard. Oh Jesus! Really got shot. It's quite a funny story. It's not. It is quite. It is. It is a funny story. But I talk about that, and I talk about a night with Alistair Campbell, um, talking about mental health. 
where, where Hollywood doing were trying to sell me all his books. You know, like a traveling salesman. He had a, he had a briefcase full of old books. <laughs> and they were quite interesting. And then I did some, I opened a shop with Ed Balls, which were hilarious back in 2014. I predicted the 2015 election, a really nice guy. And then I spent time with Ruby Wax. She came to Leeds and I met her after the show. They were wow. talking about mental health last year. So, so there's an old, so, so any people, get a bit bored, we can always skip to, I think it's chapter 11, which is called Famous People and Restraining Orders. Fantastic. <laughs> Gary, tell us where that journey took you. And then I went and got a job working for a medical company, just doing sort of assistant accounting roles. And then I managed to work my way through different grades and obviously luckily passed all my examinations first time, which were, which were quite a feat in those days. And then I was looking at, I went through finance, I, I I had a couple of lucky breaks where there were big projects and they needed somebody from finance to go work on there. And I worked on there and I think that I must have done a half decent job because people in the company saw that I actually knew things more than finance. <laughs> Obviously, the first thing is being good at finance, but I was curious and, and people took an interest in me. And that led me to going from finance to actually being the head of IT for a while. Which sounds, yeah, that, that was an amazing <laughs> journey. And that's probably where I, I learned most of, most of my project and life skills. So I, I headed up IT and I was doing, a, it was an ERP implementation back in, and they were in for steering committees, for a different project team. So that was very difficult and pushed me to my limits on sort of project management skills, but great learning experience. And again, I, I, I did a reasonable job. I networked, met a lot of people. And I think those, that phrase, on time, working well type thing for somebody working in IT worked for me and people thought that I was going beyond duty and that I was really motivated to deliver something and not just sort of tick a box that says project finish. It had to do more and deliver more than the actual project, which was sort of unheard of then. Um, so I did that really well. And then I had an offer to work in marketing. So, wow, it's like finance, IT, marketing. And a lot of that were on the commercial side and obviously you know, sort of qualifying through SEMA and, and working in a in an organization that is worldwide, where there's a lot of worldwide reporting, there's a lot of European management accounts you have to put together. I think that stood me in good stead to sort of talk not only about finance and, and what we're importing in the commercial side, but I could also look at doing pricing, doing strategic planning. This is where the economics, and because I'm a, I've always been really interested in stats, um, I could really sort of sort of revitalize my career in marketing because I brought in a lot of things that were missing around using statistics, looking at market numbers, looking at market share, looking at market forecasts, looking at earnings calls of competitors. And, and this really helped me having this sort of fundamental approach, which really comes from the financial upbringing. Mm -hmm. And it brought a lot of interest. So what I used to say is, look, instead of thinking about you know, projects and, and strap plans as being pieces of paper. Let's bring them alive. Let's actually bring proper insights. Let's work out what we could deliver financially. And, and what does it mean financially if we deliver that? I used to talk to people who were unaware about the workings of finance and why it's more important than just two numbers, which is, you know, you know just a, a profit number or a sales number. There's a lot more that you have to talk about with cash flow. And, I went and I did strategic marketing for a few years and then I got a role which was more around business insights, business strategy. Uh -huh. and, and by then there were 
I was just working in one franchise for quite a long time and they gave me responsibility for three franchises, all looking after the medical industry, but all different focuses. And that was a real eye-opener working with three different VPs, looking after three different franchises across Europe. And it also had a worldwide role as well. So 80% were doing the European job, 20% were working on a worldwide team, trying to standardize the approach, trying to make sure that we could bring some synergies and deploy this worldwide instead of having pockets of excellence. How do we actually have a, a standard approach, which is the sort of best in class or, or you know, high standard approach? So, you know, I got in, involved in doing that. Um, so it's quite quite a long journey thinking about it now of doing different things. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I, yeah. I always think that if you enjoy something you, you do, you never really work a day in your life because you get up and you just... You don't think about the stress and the pressure. You just get on with it because you're really motivated to not get through the day, but to deliver something, whatever it is. It might not be the end product which you're delivering. It might be the start of something new, a new project. It might be trying to build a team up that's, that's across multiple countries. So I always had a, a passion for doing that and I'm always energized by doing that as well. Cool. I think, well, IT, I can kind of get the connection, finance yeah. to IT, but marketing... Uh, you know, accountants are typically told they're not creative, and when we think of <laughs> creativity, yeah. and you you talked a lot about statistics and the commercial side of marketing and everything. So, I suppose, how did you actually end up in that job, or who brought? Yeah, it was just. Yeah, it was weird. They were the first meeting that I went to, and and they gave me this position, which was director of strategic marketing. And somebody said to me, "We need to make room for Gary's big calculator." <laughs> so, uh, so even then, it was, there were a little people. Place, but what, what happened? And, and again, I think one of the things I want to say to you know listeners is, when you do a job, do it really, really well, whatever it is, and always try to collaborate with people. And always, if you're working on a project, show an interest in the project, not what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And what had happened was back in the sort of late '90s, there were a project where we'd been acquired by Johnson and Johnson. And one of the guys who worked in marketing who came from Johnson & Johnson and, and he, he ended up being in charge of marketing eventually and the president of the company mm-hmm. is working on a project which was something ridiculous like beyond the, the millennium. It was, you know, 1998. And it was, how do we bring all this together and have a high-performing team and a high-performing business? And, and I were in finance then and I remember... We had the VP of operations, VP of supply chain, and they put me on there because I not only worked on the finance side, I was the operations controller. So I sort of knew, you know, not just the sort of reporting that we had to do, I knew the operational side of it. And and I remember we were talking about reducing costs in the factory, and I asked the the, the guy who, who came to offer me this job, you know, years later, I run about price elasticity. Uh-huh. And I think it was... You know, I said, well, it's okay, you know, there's a lot that we can do, but but what about, you know, price less? Just to say, how's that work? What's the pricing like? What's the flexibility? Do you have volume? Obviously, you know, you know a lot of this through the SEMA upbringing. And you were just amazed. And it was saying, well, why do you want to know about that? I said, well, it's all one big cog, you know, and we have to look at this. So I said, we well, you know, there's thousands of products we're selling, but there might be particular ones where we can get more margin by, reducing costs we might be able to get more margin if 
you know, we can, you know, increase the price. Or where we can't manufacture at a lower cost, is there anything we can do on the pricing side? Somebody looking at that. And I'm trying to sort of come at it from a joined-up business point of view. And a lot of this comes from, you know, the early studying that I did of doing the AAT, learning the basics, the fundamentals, and then doing the SEMA. And it was that joined-up thinking. Yes. And this guy who later became president, you know, yes. years after, remembered that. And, you know, we had a conversation at a leadership meeting where I went as the, you know, IT director. And at that point, we started talking about the business sales side. And then, you know, he rang me up a few months after, says, I've got this role, I think we're perfect. We need somebody who's, who's I think, coming all-rounder. You know, they were like, they were like, they were like, oh, you're a bit of a, I said, you're like a bit of a Stanley Matthews. They come up with some football analogy. He said, you're like this football, Ian Buff. He says, you're a bit of an all-rounder. I didn't like any of the examples he gave. But I took, you know, in principle, I took what he was saying. And he just says, why don't you come, you know, you know, try it out? He says, I'm sure you'll make a success. And I just asked him, you know, what, what's the problem? And he was just like, well, you know, we, we spend a lot of time, a lot of it's around product focus, but a lot of the planning we do, you know, we need to, you know, you know, really consolidate a different type of thinking more about the marketplace, about mm-hmm. competitors. It, you know, he says, we have to get people more financially astute. I still remember him saying that. Mm-hmm. You know, he says, a lot of people think it's a big money pay and, 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 it's all around marketing and we have to throw money at, you know, campaigns and that. And this is the loose site that we have to, you know, return a profit X. And he says, I think that, you know, you'd be good at doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I thought it's nice to be asked. And I thought I've spent enough time in IT. I think I've done a good job. I've learned a, a lot of things about myself with the pressures of being in IT, you know, being in charge for a while. And I thought, yeah, I fancy really doing that. And, uh, you know, it's a bit like you, you go in and, and people give you all these plans and tell you, you know, 90 days and do this. And I, I just spent time, the first week, I just went round and spoke to key people working in those different functions. And I went to see a few customers as well mm-hmm. uh, to just have a chat with them. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of fast-tracked myself on, you know, what was going on in that environment. On one side, what were the customers' perception of how we approached them? And, and on our side, you know, what... What type of tools and processes did we, as the accountant coming out of me again, you say, but what type of tools and processes did we have, especially around decision-making, yeah. especially around recording success? And yeah. success to somebody working in the commercial side is different to somebody in finance. You know, you know generating you know, a few extra sales or, or bringing in a few extra clients is all well and good, but if it's, done, if it's not profitable or it's done with a lot of overhead costs that follow that, yeah. And you're saying, actually, it's probably not a good deal. And if it were your own business, you probably won't do that. Yeah. So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying, you know, you just have to have sort of different metrics and different investment calculations before you actually go and sign something. Mm. And, and that's where I could. And I think it's a case of bridging that gap. And I was lucky I could do that. Mm. And, and I had to learn a lot. I mean, obviously, there were times I had to learn a lot about different routes to market. I had to learn a lot about products. But... You know, my, my key skill is how do I simplify this? How do we turn it into one or two key metrics? How do we actually focus on what are the measures of success? And how do we also make sure that from a finance point of view, that people know that, you know, even if it's a big budget, that every dollar spent, you know, is going to work for us and that people take responsibility for that as well. So, you know, I brought in a lot of sort of governance and I think, Collective responsibility, especially around finance, for yeah. me. Not that people didn't have that; they knew about it, but they're thinking, "How can I impact it? If I sell somewhere down the line, 
you know, we'll record a sale and, and you know, that, that must be good for the company. And you have that level of understanding. It's a case of, you have to think a little bit more about that, about, you know, you know some customers may be a bit more profitable than others, one thing, you know, we look at. And then we have to think about all these costs that, that you're pumping into all these campaigns about, even though, you know, you may have a budget for it, is you've still got to, you know, manage them. You've got to time them with potential revenue streams as well. And, and what, yeah, that's it. So I think what comes out, and, and again, to everybody who's listening to this from finance is, there's a real lack of financial understanding, you know, in, and this isn't just in where I worked, you know, talks to a lot of people in commercial yeah. departments. A lot of it is chase the sales. People say this, you know, if you get the sale, everything, everything else is sorted out type mentality. And yeah. it's not true. You know, it might have been in 1971 or 72 and that phrase has been passed oh, down from... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, miles before I I think that phrase might have been passed down from grandfather, father and son all working in the industry. But it's not true anymore. You know, you've got to be smart about the way you spend your, your money, you know, your investments. And I think, you know, my, my job, and, and this is true, you know, right up until probably the last few months, is, is finance were a real foundation stone for everything I did. Yeah. You know, and bring in, yeah. bring, bring in financial responsibility, explaining about why, you know, what, why is it so important that people talk about profitability? Why do we have pricing policies? Well, and, and, and at the end of the day, it, it's to protect the finances, to make sure that we keep growing, you know, from a profit point of view, to maximize investments, to keep mm -hmm. costs, to when we look at leveraging cost structures is to make sure that we leverage them because, you know, we don't want to get to a point where they get out of control and then, you know, you have to look at, you know, maybe redundancies and things like that. So yeah. I think part of, the, part of the role is to, you can, it's a, it reminds me actually um, of the coronavirus um, oh, yeah. pandemic. And it reminds me of it reminds me of those daily briefings where you know the two scientists come up and support the leader, yeah. and it, and sometimes it's just there's facts and figures, and after a while you get into them. But sometimes there's no real explanation of what do they actually mean, yeah. and wow. no simplification. So so people talk about an R number, mm. and then they talk about you know other things and comparisons, but they don't actually say what it means and and mm. can't say. You know, what is the impact to you personally? You know, this R number, what would it mean if you walked into, you know, the centre of Leeds now and and the R number in one part of Leeds was, you know, two and the R number's at 0.3? Mm. You know, what would it mean? I think it's the same with finance. When we talk about we need you to grow at this or we need you to return system net income of whatever yeah. and, and just do it type thing, is I think people buy into it more of explaining this is why we do it. So why do we have a number set like that? Does it come from us? Does it come from the corporation? You know, we have people invest in the company and, yeah. and, you know, we have to release so much as a return of dividend. And, you know, you can relate to people to say, people have shares in a company to say, you know, you're a shareholder. You might not get a big return and it might not be your big investment, but it's the same process. You know, you have to, you have to, you know, make money, and you have to invest so much to carry on and to grow, but so much has to be released to people who've invested in you. And you have to get that balance right. And that's what we're trying to do. And it's amazing. You know, you start using some basic financial fundamentals of people just to explain it. And they get it. And they're like, so I understand why, why it goes up by half. Of, yeah, it's like, it's like if, it, if we don't deliver that, then we pay out 
you know, less dividends. So people then think, well, maybe we should invest anywhere else and get a better return with the yes. banks or, or whatever. Or, you know, we're saying, well, we have to deliver the return because it's really important to have the investors on our side. But, but what happens then? Well, we have to maybe cut a few costs then to make sure that we can, you know, we can have the same type of profitability to, to invest. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's inevitable that things get cut. And some of those aren't people. Some of those are activities that might deliver more growth as well. So, so you know, it's really important that, that finance people, when they're talking, at, and this can be any level, it's not just at a high level, even if you're explaining, you know, good financial management to another functional leader, mm-hmm. or a reason why you have to have something approved in a, in a certain way, which people might say, oh, it's such a long process. It's like, yeah. you know, there's a reason why you're doing that. And part of the role of somebody finance is to really explain that to yeah. get people on board so that they do it and do it well. And then if it may, you know, people then maybe think of, of, actually, Gary, if we did it like this, would it help you? You know, and, and it, yeah. it's, it's a completely different relationship. Then. Yeah, it opens it up rather than yeah, it does, yeah. like it's being pushed down on you. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but I suppose the, the people side, I mean, that's kind of coming out in the discussion we're having, being able to relate to people beyond the technical skills that you had. Was there a defining moment in your early on career that you realized you needed to be successful? You needed more than just technical skills? Yeah, I I think, you know, there's some learning experiences that you go through on that. And I think, you know, I remember being called on to me first project and um, it was, again, it was a small manufacturing site and I was representing finance. And I remember that I had all the facts and figures and it were around bonus payments on a weekly basis. So, so there were a lot of, you know, it was a very passionate meeting. And I, I just went, I went in as the sort of record keeper yeah. and, uh, and, and put up certain numbers and says the bonuses will be paid at this because of blah, blah. And, and, and I soon realized that, that being able to engage and, and explain and collaborate and, and actually listen as well. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when people, you know, and it affects money, are on about these reasons why and why, you know, can't you actually have some exceptions in there because, you know, machines broke down for whatever hours and that. And if you just stick there and just say, no, these are the numbers and this is what, you're thinking, you, know, you have to get people on board. And, and part of that is understanding, you know, how you actually project yourself. And uh-huh. the big thing that I realized is listening is, is even though, you know, you've got a certain objective in any, any meeting or, or in any role is you have to listen. And, and part of that listening will help you engage. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes bi-directional then, you know, mm-hmm. then there's a level of influence on both sides. And I think it, it comes to that great word called trust um, because Ideally, that's what you're trying to build. So I realized that trust and credibility. Yeah. And, and, you, need, and, you, and you do that by that, like, the listening. You do it by empowering people as well. If you're, you know, a manager, you, people work for you. And also the credibility of, of doing high-quality work, of, of listening to feedback on, on that, and obviously taking that into account and maybe making some changes or, or refinements. Yeah. And, and I, and I soon realized that you can be, you can be really good technically. But yeah. If you cannot, if you're in a function and, 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 you know, these days you're going to have 
a team of people at some point in your career or you're going to be on a cross-functional project team. Yes, yes. If you're only good technically and you can't, you can't really influence, you can't really get people to see your point of view mm-hmm. and, and people don't have a level of trust and confidence in you, mm-hmm. it gets really, really difficult. Mm-hmm. And even if, even if you've got the most startling numbers that everyone should jump on board and run in that direction with you is people will be reluctant to do that. Yeah. If you can't engage properly. Yeah. 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 I was reading an article today about how management as we know it is it's dead effectively. That actually what we need now is a more human based management, recognizing people for their strengths, for their messiness, their uniqueness, and not just putting everyone in a box saying you do that and you do that. Obviously, you had people see your strengths and people that maybe had a human management approach. What about working on limitations, Gary, or weaknesses? Yeah, I, uh, oh yeah, I'd, I must have to admit as well, I think, you know, being honest, is uh, I did have many weaknesses pointing out to me. And, uh, it took, and, and I think you're right, the old philosophy of management, and I, I, I tend to call it coaching now and I've written an article on on be a coach not a manager and as well as I got this badly wrong and I think this is one where where you can go into a position you know if it's an accounting position and you observe what's around you and I grew up in the 90s with a lot of like like the traditional management books about about how you should engage power dressing all this stuff and, and some decent techniques as well which is still which should, should still be used and and, and you just forget yourself. And as soon as you start not being yourself and you go into this mode is, is you realize that people really don't want to work for you. They'll do the, you know, what's just required and no more, mm-hmm. which might be okay, but I don't think it works very well, especially working on projects. You need people to really have the passion to deliver high quality and maybe go beyond. So I think, you know, the, the human side of it is really key. And I got it wrong a lot of times. And I really, I think about when I were in IT, because I, I, there were multiple technical people and I changed my approach. You know, I had to sit with people who go into all kinds of technical jargon and then I had to pick with people who knew that their expertise put them in a powerful position. And I, just, and I wanted to make sure, and then a lot of people who were really, really trying their best and it's like, you know, you need to manage them all in a slightly different way. But also, I think there were more coach involved. I think just getting a big stick out and saying, this is what needs to happen. It didn't work, and I tried that. And I thought, it's not naturally me. And it's not naturally me, because you're under pressure to get a project, it's yeah. millions, and then you've got to go to different countries, and you're like, can't you just do it? Can't you just follow instructions and that? And it's like, take a massive step back, Gary. It's like, no, it doesn't work. You know, you know, we're always into football. It's like, you know, when you do football, it's about coach. So you have to coach people, you know what I mean? And I started to take a different view then. And I had to spend more time with people, ask them about what, you know, how, how do they think we could get there? Never mind what I thought. How, how do they, how, we wanted to do something. It's like, it's like, what do you think? And, what, and then ask them about the, the, the only like this, which people do. It's like, this is my bit. This is the bit I do. Oh, yeah. I try to get people to think beyond that, to say, yeah. they feel, I, it's like, I feel a sense of responsibility for the person at the end. And sometimes we might be at the end. And it's like, so what do you feel about that? If you were at the end and you're waiting for, you know, Z, you in A, B, C, D, and it's all got to happen in a timely manner. And it, it doesn't, and you're just left in this awful situation. How would you feel? 
Mm. And people go, yeah, it'd be terrible. It's like, well, you know, we're sort of working a bit like that in a way. So we do need to change it. So I took more of a, a coaching style and uh, that works really well. And I've just carried on. And it's like anything else, you just carry on learning. So yeah. I just I just bought a few. So the management books got burned, you know, the Wacky General Pie. And I bought more coaching books. And I got, you know, even coaching books about sport. And I just took some of the principles yeah. and thought people respond in a different way. You yeah. know, and I thought, and then again, it's like, you think, what would the ideal sort of employee be for me? Or somebody working on a project, somebody who gets out of bed, who really wants to come, they can't wait to come to work because they need to get pieces of work done so it moves them on because they're, they're charging towards this end product or end goal, which might not be an individual one, it might be part of a project team. Mm -hmm. It's like, if I can get people to be passionate and, and have that drive and commitment like that, then that would be brilliant. And the way to do it is, is that there's a way that you, you know, adapt your style, you can still yourself but you also make it a bit bi-directional this and you put more onus on people that work for you about their skills and, and exactly like you said with weaknesses I hated that people you know I, I, I started doing that I thought I don't want to tell people what the weaknesses are and then you realize thinking I want them to use the strengths the person who's the most lateral thinker when the problem solved I don't want him to go off and do a course on effective business writing for five weeks yeah. I want him to solve the big problems. Now, if he's got, and if, you know, this is to anybody out there, if you've got some skills that need to be brought up to an adequacy level, yeah. that, will, that stop you from doing what you do, you know, you're, you're brilliant at, at doing mundanes, you're brilliant at problem solving, you're brilliant about blue sky thinking or whatever, but, you know, you can't somehow put that into a nice consent email or a nice report. Is Yeah, just work on it so it gets up to an adequate standard. Yeah. But what you don't do is take that and then a, a list of all the 15 things that people say to become the most superhuman being in the world and the, the, the most hireable person, you know, in Europe. You need to do all this. It, it, it's, you know, it's nonsense and it won't work and it'll distract you well, from using all those core skills that have got you this far in life that well, will I, make you successful. Yeah, and I think, you know, there was probably a belief that excellence comes from repairing or fixing your yeah. thoughts. Um, and then you go off and you focus on what you're not good at. Yeah. And that's kind of a waste of everyone's time and resources. Yeah. And I think, and again, I think it's, you know, when I, you know, I'm not having to go traditional management approaches, but it seems to come from, you know, traditional sort of 90s management. If you're, you know, people go around then is people do feedback. Feedback's great. I think, I think it's, um, you know, it's great to get some feedback and, and some of it might be, a bit constructive and it might give you a, a you know a view of a blind spot which is brilliant and when it's yeah. common yeah. and when, when, when you see commonality and yeah. you know you've got blind spot great and especially if it and then you look at the relevance to what you're doing and this is what's really important susan is you know if it, if it says that i you know to saying i've got a bad choice in trousers you know that's not that relevant you know? <laughs> you know, which i did have i did have from some of my peers when i used to go to multiple board meetings it's on one of the feedback it's you've got a real bad choice in suits which come from other which i thought it's sort of relevant and maybe i should maybe it distracts people i thought what's irrelevant it distracts people i'll put something more sober on but you know if somebody comes back and they're saying that that somehow you 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 put too many details in front of people it gets too complex what you're trying to present then that becomes a barrier. So that does need to be addressed. But when you address it, you just have to work about how you go about it. People go, oh, I'm doomed. You know, I'm doomed. This is like the worst. Things like, you've got a lot of strengths and nobody's perfect. 
just work on that so you get it to an adequate, might be an adequate level for what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, don't, don't get too down about it. Don't impact yourself down. Nobody's perfect. If you look around you, there's people that you know are really good at some things and not others. So you know different. And this is just relevant to what you do. So you just need to work on it. And it probably just needs a bit of refinement. Mm-hmm. You probably don't need to go back to the starting block. And I think a lot of it is put it into perspective. You know, yeah. take it, put it, make it relevant, put it into perspective, and then address it. Don't get emotional about it, because that's, that's when people get emotional and going, oh, I'm really rubbish at everything, and, and the list is 14, blah, blah, blah. And, and you can't do that. You've got to put it into perspective, put it into relevance, and look at the skills that come back as well, you know, because you'll get probably 80%, maybe more, 90 or say, all the things that you're good at that people love working with. You know, I actually love working with you because you're great at doing this. You explain things that are so complex and, and that, that, you know, your financial knowledge is outstanding or whatever people put, you know, and say, that's good. You know, you know, it's good. You know, it's good. And, and work out how do you use those more? How do you take these skills you've got and how do you take them to a wider audience? Yeah. You know, so don't just, don't just say, thank you very much. That's nice. I'm glad that people feel like that. You know, just think, okay, so I'd just take these and use them to a wider audience because that's part of your map to success. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.